Continuing our series titled Principles for Parents, we go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, hear God's holy word. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know Yahweh, and the priest's custom with the people was that any man offered a sacrifice, when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh, for men abhorred the offering of Yahweh. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I ask you to give me clarity of thought, give me articulate speech, that I might speak clearly your words, and we might not lead us into any error, uh, that we pray for you to deliver us from any distraction or temptation uh, while we spend this time in your word. Guide us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, it's no secret, I trust, it's no secret that I love my children. I adore my children. I am proud of them. I am pleased with them. I count it a blessing to be their father. I love the way that God's love has been manifested to me through them. I love their wit. I love their humor. I love their joy, their insights into God's word and his world. I love my kids. And I love your children as well. I hope you all know that. I hope you all know that when we sing as a congregation Psalm 127, or we sing Psalm 128, and we acknowledge that children are gifts from the Lord, I am singing that, saying that my children are a gift and your children are a gift. I don't think of the children of the church, I don't think of them as future members of the church. I don't think of them as, as second-class church members or as if they're only halfway into the covenant and we're going to make sure and see and watch and check them out before we really include them in the covenant. They're my brothers and sisters, and I view them as brothers and sisters. I call them brother and sister, and I have this unbelievable privilege of baptizing them and discipling them and teaching them and watching them grow as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus. I am so optimistic when I see our young men and women. I am so optimistic for the future when I see how they're growing and maturing. And I'm optim optimistic for the future of the church. I think the church is really set up for success when I see our young people, our young men and women. But as much as I love your kids and as much as I love my own, I don't love them more than anything. There is someone I love more. My children know that I love the Lord Jesus more than I love them. And the way that they know that is, is when I show them that I'm more concerned about pleasing the Lord Jesus than I'm concerned about pleasing them. I'm more concerned that Jesus is happy than that they are happy. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 10, he said, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
As much as we love our sons and daughters, we must not love them more than we love the Lord. What's it called when you love something more than you love Jesus? What's that called? What's it called when you receive a gift from God and you honor that gift and you love that gift more than you love God? That's called idolatry, right? And idolatry in the scriptures is often associated with slavery. You serve things, you submit to things that are not God, and you become enslaved to them. You become addicted. Your world becomes distorted and twisted. And when we do that, when, when we do that with our children, when we love our children more than we love the Lord Jesus, you're not really loving them. You're, in fact, abusing them. You're turning them into monsters. You end up putting expectations on them that they can't ever live up to. They weren't designed to be gods. Your children were not designed to be your god or your idol. And then when we lift them up and idolize them and they mess up as they will because they are sinners, well, we'll be inclined not to stand against their sin. We will defend and cover up their sin and we will make ourselves enemies of Christ in standing with them against the Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you get a little nervous at this, at this language at some level. How can I love Jesus more than I love my kids? As if we only had this limited supply of this thing called love, and once it runs out, it runs out. You just have this little, this little you know, bundle of love, and you can only give it to so many people. It is this idea that, that we would love our kids less if we love Jesus more, but that's not the way it works. The deeper your love for the Lord, the deeper your love for your children. In fact, loving your children more than Jesus is loving them far too little. How can it be true love if you're an idolater? How can it be true love when you're setting yourself against the God who is the definition of love? You would love your children more if you loved the Lord Jesus more. It may be hard to hear, it may be hard to understand, but we get all this lived out in technicolor in the first chapters of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel opens with a childless woman named Hannah pouring her heart out. She is weeping and praying for God to give her a son. And you might look at that on the surface and, well, there's an example of the idolatry of children. It really looks like she's being pretty selfish and pretty idolatrous. She should learn to be happy without a son and just learn to be content. Maybe she's just wanting a son to fulfill her own self-image of what a mother is. But that's all quickly disproven. That's all nonsense because she prays for a son in order to give him away. She prays for a son that she might give him right back to the Lord. She prays this, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you and so that he can serve you. Precisely what she does. When she has a son, the Lord gives her a little boy. She names him Samuel. And when he's about three years old, she does that very thing. She takes him to the tabernacle to serve. And then she sings a song. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, she has this song where she sings not about her own fulfillment in motherhood. She's not singing about her own identity as a mother, but she's singing about the salvation of the Lord and the work of God to defeat his enemies and judge the earth. There's nothing selfish. There's nothing idolatrous about all that Hannah asks for because she loves the Lord more than she loves her son. And so she gives him to the Lord, and she's blessed with not only that child, but she's blessed with five other children beyond Samuel. 
And so in the opening chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah and her son are contrasted with the priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The Bible says Eli's sons were corrupt. Your translation of the Bible may say that they were sons of Belial. That means they're worthless men. The scriptures say they don't know Yahweh. They're atheists. They're unbelievers dressed up in the robes of priesthood. And they're abusing their positions in order to make themselves rich and fat. They're very similar to the priests that Jesus runs into when he comes to Israel in the first century. I want to read more about what these guys were up to. If you want to pick up with me in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, we're going to read several more verses to hear what these guys were doing. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make Yahweh's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because Yahweh desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with Yahweh and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, says Yahweh, God of Israel, I indeed said that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now Yahweh says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. These two men, Hophni and Phinehas, bring shame to their father Eli. They behave like Canaanites at the temple of the Lord. They worship like Canaanites, sleeping with the girls who come to the sanctuary to worship, and they're stealing the offerings of God's people, even stealing the Lord's portion of those offerings. They are leading Israel astray. The office of priests, the office of the Levites, they were to husband Israel. God has put them in a position to protect the bride. And here they are abusing the bride and stealing from the bride. Now, Eli, the father, is disturbed and he is ashamed about what his boys are doing. He says, I've heard things, but he really has no influence over them to stop them. And so a prophet comes to Eli and pronounces God's judgment on his house. Well, let's look at, let's look at exactly what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. What were they up to? They were engaged in corrupt worship. They were engaged in liturgical sin. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we find specified that when certain offerings were brought to the tabernacle, specific portions of meat were to go to the priest who was attending the sacrifice, who was, who was leading worship. Now the priests, the Levites, they didn't have any land. And so when they're serving at the tabernacle, they have no means to go out and raise their own crops. They can't raise their own animals for food. And so the way that the Lord provided food for them 
was that they were to take specific portions of the meat that were offered on the altar. Some of the meat in like the, the peace offering was to be eaten by the worshiper before the Lord. The rest of the sacrifice was consumed by Yahweh. The smoke of the sacrifice went up and was incorporated into God's glory cloud. So Yahweh ate, the worshiper ate, and the priest had a portion of the, of the animal that was offered on the altar. So when the offering was a bull or when the offering was a sheep, the priest got the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. The priest also got the first fruits of the wine, of the grain offering, of the oil, and of the fleece of the sheep. So they were provided for. The priest was getting all of this good stuff as one who ministered before Yahweh. There is nothing that he needed that he lacked. He got meat, wine, oil, uh, grain, fleece, all of the produce, all of the good stuff of Israel he would receive. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, however, were not satisfied with the portions that were designated to them. And instead, they just took whatever they wanted. Rather than waiting for the fat to burn off before taking their portions, Hophni and Phinehas took raw meat from the people. See, the fat was part of the Lord's portion that would burn off. And when they would do this, the worshipers would protest and say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 what are you doing that's the Lord's portion. But Hophni and Phinehas threatened violence and they took their part before the Lord got his part. Rather than giving the Lord his first and giving the Lord the best as they were supposed to, um, they took their part first and whatever the worshiper got, whatever he could take, he could take. But it wouldn't have been the part that the worshiper was supposed to share with his family. So not only were they robbing God as if that were a small thing, they were, also worship, uh, they were also robbing the worshiper as well at the sanctuary. They were ruining worship. They were making it miserable by their rebellion. This whole thing, this whole setup was obnoxious and it was, um, it, it was nauseating to the people who come to worship God because of the rebellion and the wickedness of these two men. This wasn't a small thing. It wasn't like they weren't clear on what they were supposed to be doing. They had the manual. They knew how to offer sacrifices and how these, these liturgies were to be conducted. Sacrifices had a well-established set order that were to be followed without any variation. And so doing something like what they were doing was high-handed rebellion toward God. They made the whole liturgy of the sanctuary, the whole liturgy of the sacrifice into a great big joke. They didn't think about what it meant. And they didn't, they didn't think about the significance of the offering and the holiness and the power of God and what God was doing through the sacrifice. They just knew, hey, we're going to get some ribs out of the deal. We're going to get some tenderloin out of this. And that's all they're in it for. The other thing that they were doing was that they were sleeping with the women who served at the tabernacle. They're defiling the bride that Yahweh gave them to protect. Rather than covering her nakedness and preserving her virginity and her honor, these two boys were stripping them and violating them. See, they have no regard for holy things. They have no regard for things that are off limits. They go wherever they please. They take whatever they want. They're not under authority and they submit to no one. Do you see how sin just leaks out all over the place? when you allow it to grow unchecked. They start by not taking worship seriously, and then they start not taking uh, uh, marriage and sexual fidelity seriously, and then ultimately they end up hating the Lord altogether, and they don't know Yahweh. 
Don't ever think that you have sin in one area under control. Don't ever think you've got one of those little velvet ropes like at the theater where you've got just this little monster of sin contained as if the rest of your life you keep your nose clean, but you have this one little area where you're just going to let this thrive. Don't think that you can just sin over here, uh, but the rest of the life, uh, the areas of your life are going to be okay. No, Uh, before you know it, that monster breaks the ropes and is all over the place, destroying everything. Before you know it, you're out of the church, you hate God. Uh, Sin is systemic, it's organic, it's holistic, to use all those popular terms. It's all true of sin. Sin gets all over you, and it gets all over these boys. They start by defiling and robbing at the sanctuary, and it destroys all of what they do, and it destroys their life. So what's daddy been up to this whole time? What's Eli been doing? How is it that they are allowed to act this way without any repercussions? Well, Eli hears what they're up to, He's so far out of touch that he has to hear what's going on from somebody else. The word hear is all over this this text. He He doesn't see it with his own eyes. We read later that Eli was nearly blind. Physical blindness in the Bible, like Isaac's blindness, is indicative of spiritual blindness. Eli is obviously not a very discerning father, nor has he cultivated the respect of his sons to the point that when he speaks, they listen because they don't. They don't listen to him when he speaks. So there's this repetition of the word hear. Eli hears what's going on, but his sons don't hear him when he pleads with them. Uh, Eli says, and this is true, Eli says, if one man sins against another, God is going to vindicate that man that is wrong. But if you sin against Yahweh himself, who's going to stick up for you? Eli speaks wisdom. He speaks in Proverbs, but they just laugh at the old man. They just, they don't listen. Yahweh, what are you talking about? He's going to do what? So far, he hasn't done anything. So far, we've just gotten some good meat and we've been able to violate some women out of this deal. And this comes, this, then comes this chilling phrase in verse 25. They did not heed the voice of their father because Yahweh desired to kill them. God has already turned them over to judgment and God has already decided to destroy them. God doesn't need them anymore because the Lord has a secret weapon waiting in the wings. There's a little boy named Samuel who's diligently growing up and serving the Lord. Now, if we were just to stop there, if we were just to look at Eli, you might feel a little sorry for him and say, look, he tried. He tried to talk to his sons. What more is he supposed to do? He told them that what they were doing is wrong. Is he really to be blamed for what is going on here with his rebellious sons? But when the prophet comes to talk to Eli, the prophet blames Eli for what's going on. He says to Eli, you're honoring your sons more than you're honoring Yahweh. And it looks like Eli is getting fat off the offerings too. He's later described as a fat man. Perhaps he's eating all the rich fat portions that belong to the Lord that his sons are stealing. He's eating the food that his sons stole. In the next chapter, when the Lord speaks to little Samuel, Samuel is told by Yahweh that Eli is being judged because his sons made themselves vile And Eli did not restrain them. That's in chapter 3, verse 13. The sons made themselves vile, and Eli did not restrain their sin. 
Now, it would be appropriate to sympathize with Eli if Eli were obviously and openly disgusted by his son's behavior. If we read about Eli calling upon God to judge his sons, to destroy his sons in order to save Israel, if, if Eli had put himself bodily in the way of their rape and theft of the people of God, if we were to read about him offering sacrifices for his sons and repenting for his sons the way that Job uh, offers up sacrifices for his children. We don't, though. We don't get any of that. Instead, Eli is letting them do whatever they want. And the Lord, who knows all things, knows that Eli is not doing everything he can do. God knows that Eli could have stopped them, and he didn't. Or at least, at the very least, if you're going to sin, if you're going to be sons of Belial, if you're going to be worthless men, you're not going to do it as priests. I'm going to strip you of the priesthood. You go be wicked somewhere else, but you're not going to do it at the tabernacle. Eli didn't do that. It was Eli's responsibility not to cover for his son's sin, but to expose their sin. And the fact that he didn't deal with his sons this way meant that he honored his sons more than he honored God. He loved his sons more than he loved God. He feared his sons more than he feared God. And that spelled destruction for his house. He destroyed his sons and he destroyed his family by not correcting his sons and opposing their sin. Now this prophet's charge to Eli should make all of us parents sit upright and assess the way we view our children. When the prophet says to Eli, you honor your sons more than God. How might we honor our children more than the Lord? Well, by indulging them, by failing to restrain their sin. We say when we fail to restrain and correct and admonish, we're saying what you want is more important than what God has said. And so I'm going to indulge you and I'm going to please you and I'm going to ignore the Lord. I'm going to stand with you in your sin and support it and I'm going to, in effect, stand against Christ. There are at least three key areas where Eli failed his sons by loving them more than loving the Lord. First, he apparently did not teach his sons boundaries. He didn't teach these men boundaries. These are adult sons. They're not little boys. These are not teenagers. But what's evident in Eli's failure toward his sons is a long pattern of indulgence in failing to teach them what is off limits, what is not yours, where you may not go and what you may not do. God's law prescribed what they could have and what they couldn't have in the sacrifices. It wasn't as if God was holding everything back from them and not letting them have anything. God was uh, uh, blessing them and causing them to abound with all kinds of good things. God was not being selfish. And yet God's law is very clear on the duties of a priest, what they're to do in leading worship without any variation, without any deviation. Here is the order. God's liturgical law established boundaries for them. The Ten Commandments established boundaries as well that they also violated. Here are lines you must not transgress. That's what God's law gives us. Don't cross the line of your neighbor's property and take his stuff. It's not yours. You shall not steal. Do not cross the boundary of your neighbor's marriage and take his wife. Don't cross that boundary. Do not commit adultery. 
Don't cross the boundary of your neighbor's life and take his life. It's not yours to take. Do not commit murder. Do not cross the line and worship the gods of the nation. Stay within the boundary that God has set for your life. Live within the boundaries that God has established for you. Live within them in gratitude, knowing that there's a bounty of joy and the yeses outnumber the noes within the boundaries that God has established by his law. Eli obviously did not establish boundaries for his sons. Every unruly child that I have ever met is a child who has not been taught boundaries. Every unruly child is a child who's never had boundaries enforced in their life. A child who lives in a world with a clear sense of boundaries is going to be trained in practicing self-control. And so when they go to somebody else's house, they know that's not my vase. I'm not going to touch it. It's not mine. It's off limits. I have this built into me that there are boundaries and there are things that are not mine and there are things that I must not touch. That's not my car. And so I shouldn't climb on it. That's not my family's car. So I'm not going to hit it with a baseball bat. That's not my wall. I'm not going to draw on it. That's not my news to share. That's not my truth to say. I'm not going to say it. These are boundaries that are built into the mind and heart and life of a child that keeps them under self-control. And it's our duty to teach and establish our children with clearly defined boundaries. You love your children when you establish boundaries. Eli didn't love his sons because he obviously didn't establish boundaries. Eli didn't love his sons and they became grabby. They saw what they wanted and they took it. Didn't matter if it was a girl, didn't matter if it was a rack of ribs, it didn't matter what it was. If they saw it and they wanted it, it was theirs. Parents must clearly establish boundaries for their children so that their children know the boundaries. They have the boundaries. They're built into their heart and their mind and they know we don't do that. We don't go there. We don't do this thing. A second way that Eli failed his sons was he did not insist upon their sexual purity. There's a lot of overlap here with the failure to set boundaries and I'm aware of that, but, but there's a very specific failure within this and it's necessary to highlight these boys have no misgivings about taking advantage of young women who come to worship at the tabernacle. They turn the sanctuary of God into this seedy bar where they could just pick up and take to bed whomever they desired. They polluted uh, uh, their, their, these relationships and they had a polluted perspective on relationships. Where did they get that? They get it from a father who didn't oppose or restrain their profligate infidelity. Eli didn't love his sons enough to insist on sexual purity. These are grown men, but instruction begins at a young age. Instruction begins at a very young age with age-appropriate conversations about marriage as soon as possible, conversations about the roles of men and women. And as they grow and mature, there are more frank conversations between dad and sons, between mom and daughters. It's necessary to have conversations about the joys of marital fidelity, conversations about lust and the folly of fornication, all of these conversations grounded in the perspective that the whole world is not a buffet of potential mates for you. 
Young men, when you see a group of girls, they're not all potential wives for you. They're not all potential targets. They are all likely someone else's wife. The young ladies in the church, young men, are not your targets. They're your sisters. And you're expected to protect their reputation and love them like sisters. God ordains there may be one of them, but not all of them. And that's not how we view them. A bunch of boys, ladies, are not potential husbands. They are your brothers, and they are someone else's potential future husbands. And so with these perspectives, you don't play at relationships. You don't play with serial dating, these puppy love, middle school romances that every little 12-year-old has a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That's only going to set you up for failure. The modern dating thing doesn't set you up for success in marriage. It prepares you for divorce. If you ask two little 12-year-olds who've got a little puppy love thing going on, oh, so you're going to get married? No, we're not going to get married. That's ridiculous. Oh, so what are you doing? You're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for this little heartbreak. One day, you're going to be sitting alone in your room listening to emo music because your girlfriend broke your heart. And you're going to be sad. That's what you're setting yourself up for. You're setting yourself up for little practice divorce is what you're doing. Why not wait until you're actually ready physically, financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually ready for marriage before even entertaining the thought of a relationship? Why not involve mom and dad who know better than uh, you, they know yourself better than you know yourself to help you think through what kind of husband or wife you need? Eli was a very modern dad. Eli was very progressive, and his sons were very progressive boys who thought the right thing to do is just go have fun, just sleep around, just see who you like. Don't get tied down, do what feels good. Eli did not set his sons up for sexual purity, and it was a shame to him, and it was a scandal for all of Israel, and it played a part in rotting out the society. The downfall of the society came because of what was going on at the tabernacle, and it was led by these two rebellious, promiscuous, fornicating boys because Eli did not restrain their sin. Parents have a duty to instruct their children in sexual purity. The third major area of failure in Eli's part was he did not lead them to take God seriously. In verse 20 of uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 30, Um, The Lord says this, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God says, if you take me seriously, I will give you weight. I will make you heavy, heavy. I will make you formidable. I will bless you. I will establish you. But if you esteem me lightly, if you don't take me seriously, you're going to blow away like the chaff, like the dust. You're going to shrivel up like a weed. By their behavior, It's apparent that Eli's sons did not take God seriously at all. They have no hesitation in doing anything they want right under God's nose. It's not like they're carrying on these shenanigans in some back alley somewhere. They're doing it right in front of the tabernacle. Now, certainly God is present in the back alley, but there's a brazenness. There is a high-handed rebelliousness that does this right in God's face face right in the sanctuary, daring him to do something about it. And the prophet puts all of this on Eli. He puts all of this on Eli's account. In the same way, we can very easily train our children to take God lightly. 
Whenever there are a thousand higher priorities in the worship of God, whenever you have higher loyalties and higher allegiances than the body of Christ, when we allow our children and their activities to become more important than worship, we teach them to take God lightly. You want to teach them that God is less important than a lot of other things? Well, let get stuff get in the way of worship all the time. Let stuff get in the way of the body of Christ all the time. Do things on Saturday night that make you so tired that you can't make it to worship on Sunday. Show them that you have higher affections for some things than God. That's how you raise idolaters. How might else we train them to esteem the Lord lightly? Well, cover for their failures and sins rather than calling them to repentance. Say, you know, God really doesn't mean what he says. We'll just, we'll just cover this up and hide it. When we, when we appease them and we negotiate with their folly, children can make things very cloudy for us if we let them. Like Eli was blind, we have blind spots when it comes to our children. We have cataracts that keep us from seeing everything that we need to see regarding our kids. Because we love them so much, we want them to be happy and successful so badly that we're tempted to cut corners and make excuses for them and ignore their sin and put up with it. And when we do that, we take them more seriously than we take God. We're turning them into idols. And in so doing, we drag us both down to destruction. Our children have this immense capacity to bring us honor and to bring us shame. They pick the best and most opportune times to show out and embarrass us. And sometimes they surprise us at what they're able to do, and they really make us proud. But in the end, they are not us. They are not extensions of us. They are individuals who are accountable to God. And the, there are times where we must stand with God and with the church against them and against their sin. That is our duty. Now, to be clear... Not everyone who has a rebellious child is an Eli. Remember, God himself had a rebellious son, Adam. Where did God go wrong with Adam? What, what defect was there in God's love for Adam that led to Adam's rebellion? Daughter Israel rebelled against God. She played the harlot with other gods. In Isaiah, God asked, what more could I have done? And the answer is nothing. It's not, you couldn't have done anything more. Nobody ever had a better pastor a more loving shepherd than Judas Iscariot. And yet, and yet Judas rebelled. Each rebellious son or daughter or disciple does not necessarily point directly to a failure in the parent or the shepherd. Each one must stand before God as an individual. The question is, dad, mom, are you gonna stand with them in their sin or are you going to stand against them and oppose their sin? That's what Eli got wrong. It wasn't that his son sinned, but that he stood with them in their sin and he covered for and defended and didn't oppose or restrain their sin. We must not wait to oppose our children's sin and folly when they're in their late teens, early 20s. That's way too late. Our children must learn very early on, I am not going to stand with you in your sin, and I'm not going to defend your foolishness. When our children are little, they get into little playground arguments, and the temptation is always to rush to take our kid's side before we even hear the whole story, because my kid would never lie. My kid would never be rude or selfish or hateful. And then you dig into the story and you find out, oh, wait, 
my child did lie and they were hateful and selfish and rude. Proverbs 18.13 says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. If you want to be exposed as a shameful fool, rush to judgment when it comes to something your children have done or said. Uh, you'll be exposed as a fool when you rush to judgment. Don't rush to defend your child no matter what. Rush to defend the truth. My rush is to find out the truth. And I'm not going to believe you until I understand the whole story. And if my child is out of accord with the truth, then I must oppose my child, correct, admonish, and instruct because I love truth more than I love you, because I love God more than I love you. And by loving God, I'm raising you in righteousness. As kids get older, it gets so much more complex sorting through the issues of relationships and what was said and what was done. So we need to be sure that as parents, we get it straight when they're young, that we aren't automatically sticking up for our kids no matter what. I love you, baby, but I am not on your side when you sin. I am not on your side when you lie. I am not on your side when you are rude and selfish and hateful. I am on the Lord's side. I am on the side of truth. So we must not be in the business of making excuses or exceptions for our kids and view all other children as corrupting influences. <laughs> that's, a, that's the thing is my precious baby would be so sweet if it weren't for all the kids teaching him how to sin. That's, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. We don't think that way. We don't operate that way. If we confess our children are sinners, then we must be equally worried about what bad things our kids are teaching everybody else as what uh, others might be teaching ours. Eli didn't think through any of this, evidently. Eli positioned himself with his sons in their folly, in their fornication, in their boundary breaking. He put himself in this position against the Lord and his people. And we didn't really have a lot of time to spend on Hannah. But on the other hand, you have Hannah and her boy. She loves the Lord more than she loves her son. How unthinkable is it to do what Hannah did, to take your three-year-old little boy and bring him and present him to the tabernacle? How tough would that be to give him up? But in a way, that's what we are all called to do. We are all called to turn our little ones over to the Lord and make sure that they know that they don't belong to themselves. As the Apostle Paul says, your body is not your own. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I do not belong to myself. Our children must know this, and we must be able to say to our children, you belong to Jesus. And if you insist on sinning, well, then he's going to deal with you. And I'm going to be praying that he does it. I'm going to be praying that he deals with you. He might be merciful to you. He might give you time to turn around and repent. But I'm going to be praying that he doesn't let you rest until you do. Because I love you. That's love. That's love. Eli didn't love his sons. It looked like he was being long-suffering and gentle. But he was abusing Israel. He was abusing the worship of God. He was abusing the liturgy. He was blaspheming the holiness of God by letting his sons continue in this wretchedness. God forbid that we ever do that, that we would love and honor our children more than God. God prevent us from repeating this terrible, fatal, destructive error. Esteem the Lord 
Hold him in high regard. Honor the Lord more than your children. And that puts you in a position to love them enough to oppose their sin and their folly. And that is the only way to life and blessing with your children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would guard and protect us from following in the error of Eli and his sons. Protect our children from folly and temptation and fornication in every evil way. Help us, give us strength by your spirit to teach them boundaries and to establish that so they grow up as people who are self-disciplined under your word and with the power of your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.